0: University of Maryland Global Campus has more than 20 years experience providing affordable online education to military service members and working adults. Offering low tuition, no-cost digital resources replacing most textbooks, scholarships for those who qualify, and more. Learn more at umgc.edu slash podcast.
1: It takes a lot of ingredients to fix or build a car, like cooking, but without the frozen dinner easy way out. eBay Motors has 122 million parts. It's always the right fitment, so you can follow any recipe to a tea. Whether it's a vintage Italian coupe that's classic like grandma's meatballs or a German luxury car that's as complicated as almost Rouladen. To cook up something great in the garage, use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com.
0: Let's ride.
1: Hey everyone, this is the Almost Road Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is Elmo and I'm with my awesome friend Caleb Jackson,
0: hey man, how are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you for having me on here, Elmo. It's a, it's a pleasure. All right,
1: well, uh, Caleb, can you introduce yourself to the, to the crowd here that's listening?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm Caleb Jackson, as, as we already said. So I'm a, uh, currently a college student at Indiana University, uh, majoring in political science communications, but on the side, I'm an author, more as just a hobby and, and a passion. Um, and I write about theology and apologetics a lot. Uh, I've written two books so far and I'm working on a third. So my first book was on the historical um, investigation of the resurrection of Jesus. My second book was on theodicy and the problem of evil. And this third book is more on um, contemporary miracle claims and um, visions of Jesus and so forth. But it also ties back a little bit to the previous resurrection book. So I'm very excited for that. I think it's going to be my uh, my current, at least, magnum opus. And it's probably going to be a very long book. So it's a lot of research, though. Yeah. All right. So and
1: I want to know your let's say philosophical and religious background, like from where you were, what kind, where were you raised? What kind of religion was taught to you? And, um, you know, your journey and exploration through the philosophy and, every, and truth, you
0: know? Yeah, that's a good question. So I was raised in a Christian home, so I, I can't say my views have changed that drastically, but I did go from being, I was raised fairly fundamentalist, uh, you know, pretty conservative. And I think my views, I really didn't even bother looking into stuff until, a handful of years ago, probably like my sophomore year of college, I would say, so maybe two or three years ago, So when I really started to do research into theism and philosophy. And I'm not even sure what the catalyst was. Um, I had just come out of kind of a, a dark time in my life. And so it was just, I think, uplifting to find um, fervency in what you believe in it and confidence. In that, and that makes me feel much better about myself now than, than back then. So I, I can say apologetics has helped me emotionally and spiritually as well as intellectually um, and so I'm just happy to, to be where I am through the grace of God. All right.
1: Well, I want to ask you though, um, your belief in, in Christianity, you know, specifically Jesus Christ, w- was it something that you, that you came to you gradually, or you actually sort of like, uh, searched for the truth at one point and decided like, I'm going to get down to business and actually determine what I should believe. You know, um, how did you come about that specific belief in Christianity?
0: So I would say it's probably the latter one of which you said that it was kind of a slow... I don't think it was this one, you know, eureka moment, although some people sometimes sometimes describe it like that. I would say it was a very gradual search and just kind of accumulation. and going back and forth i feel like i'm my own debate partner because i constantly fight with myself like you know when you're in the shower just thinking of like oh wait a minute what if what if there's a rebuttal to that argument oh no here's the counter it's 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 honestly exhausting there are some days where i would just wish i didn't i, I don't say this to be conceited of like knowing a lot because there's certainly things i don't know but when you when you do research and know a lot of things you're constantly fighting yourself and trying to think of like oh what about this rebuttal and it takes you maybe a few days and, it, and it's kind of funny sometimes I'll be persuaded out of an argument and then a week later I'll be like, actually, no, I, I, I kind of am back to my old position. So I, I changed my mind a lot. And I think that's a good thing, I would say. It, it's frustrating and kind of exciting at the same time. Yeah, I can
1: totally relate about the debate, uh, debating oneself, you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, in, in that sense then, let's get down to the foundations of your belief. And I want, let's try to, you know, uh, I want to pick your brain in this and say why do you think that, is it reasonable to believe that there is a god or is it more of like a fideistic thing like oh you have to have faith in that there is a god what what is your position on that
0: uh, i would not say it's fideistic i, I would disagree there um, i do believe in faith but i would not define faith in, in fideistic terms and for people who just i guess for clarification fideism is typically like I think what people would associate with blind faith typically, right? Just that you just have to believe because you can. And I don't really believe that faith is, is necessarily rational. Um, now I do believe in, and this is where my evidential friends will will, will not like me saying this. I do uh, believe to a certain extent, at least uh, in reformed epistemology. And I do think of religious experiences are legitimate. Uh, you know, the presence and the inner witness of the Holy spirit. I think all of that is perfectly legitimate. Um, but I also concede that most unbelievers can't experience that, and so they're not going to care that I can experience, right? So I think arguments are very important, and I absolutely, when I write, I typically take more of an evidentialist approach, and I, and I kind of have that framework. But I also don't divorce that from my own experiences, and I don't necessarily think anyone should either. But I do think there are plenty of rational arguments for the existence of God. And by the way, I think that that's more or less the default position. You know, Anthony Flew who is a popular atheist until he became a deist, uh, was famous for saying, uh, they're talking about the presumption of atheism. and you'll see memes online. It's like we're all born bait. We're all born atheists until someone lies to us. And I just don't think that's true with psychology and, and other stuff that people have been researching. So I mean, the vast majority of people on earth do believe in God or something like a God, and that doesn't prove that it's true. But I do think it proves that the people who don't see that are just kind of looked at as a little strange. And it's like, oh, okay, that that's interesting that you don't believe in God. But, you know, the, the, but that's also, uh, I don't know, I guess it's just a position that a lot of people just haven't thought about. But I, I think that's just interesting that, like, the whole human race kind of just, it's belief in God, it goes back to. I think is about is about as old as humanity itself. So I just find that very interesting.
1: Okay, then let's uh, let's uh, dive into the evidentialist approach that you take here. And you, you said that there are plenty of rational arguments for belief in God, but what kind of arguments and uh, are conclusions to these arguments? Uh, do you mean is it like a oh, because I have a rational argument, the, all these rational arguments for God. Therefore, I am 100% sure that God exists because of these rational arguments. Or is it more like a you know principle of sufficient reason that, oh, because it's reason, I guess it's pretty reasonable to believe in God, but I'm not really 100% sure. And that, in that, in that. What, what's your take on that?
0: So, yeah, I would not claim, I'm not a presuppositionalist, so I don't claim absolute certainty. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the and scale. A lot of people don't like it, but it's one to seven, one being absolutely certain that God exists, seven being absolutely certain he does not exist. I would be a two, which is a de facto theist of I am very confident that I'm correct. I wouldn't put a particular number on it. Um, I, have, I have friends who really like base theorem. I have nothing against base theorem, but I just haven't looked into it enough to put a number for my own sake. So I can't tell you what the problem, I can't tell you, you know, it's 87 point whatever percent but I am pretty confident. And by the way, I do, I do think that you have to rejoin a little bit with um, Pascal's Wager, not by itself, but I think that any, pro- any probability you put, you have to factor that in. So you don't need to be 100% certain. If Christianity is 85% likely to be true and 15% not, I still think I would say Pascal's Wager would come into play there. Um, so uh, just as a little caveat to that.
1: Okay. All right. Then well, uh, A de facto theist. Hmm. Okay, then let, oh, fine. Let's then talk about what, what the rational arguments that you have for the belief in God that lead you to this sort of sureness that God exists, but not really pure, absolute.
0: Yeah, so there are four that I typically, and there's more that I like, um, but the four that I would typically go to are um, you know typically what's called the contingency argument there's plenty of variations but just the idea of why does anything exist at all instead of nothing which is um liban is his favorite question yeah um and i'll expand on each of these more if you want the second one i would say is the moral argument that's actually my per the one i personally find to be the most persuasive because i don't think there, are, i have yet to see at least that i have studied a adequate rebuttal in my opinion um the third would be uh an argument from religious experience as i said earlier um, I think that's a very underused argument. I think people um, kind of roll their eyes at that sometimes, but I think it's also, the, I would say that's probably the majority of people on earth probably believe in God because they think they've had a religious experience of some kind. And the fourth one would be, I think, miracles, um, particularly the resurrection of Jesus, but I also miracles that happen today, I think are very good evidential, not just philosophical, but I, I like those because they're more scientific and they're more like hard data. Like you can show an MRI showing, and I have plenty of ones that I'm trying to get of, this organ grew back or this tumor went away instantly after prayer and so forth so i think that's just very compelling in my opinion
1: let's before we dive into the philosophical ones i want to let's go to the miracles for a second okay like um can you talk about specific cases that are like when you like you know when you look at them let's say wow this is truly a miracle.
0: yeah so that's a good point so that, th- this would take a while because i have a lot in my book that i'm trying to document I, I i try to also have as much medical documentation as i can um some of the more compelling ones um well uh, so i'll give you a modern one that by modern i mean in the 1980s um and this was a woman named barbara snyder she had multiple sclerosis a very severe form of multiple sc- multiple sclerosis i believe she was in her 30s at the time She was in hospice care was dying her doctor said she wouldn't come back but her hands were so um, bent they were touching her wrist and she was stuck in a fetal position her lung had collapsed her vision was not there and she was bedridden for i think for seven years something so she was in very bad health and was gonna die so a bunch of her family goes and prays for her and one day she hears um, this voice in the back of her head say my child get up and walk and she believes that voice was jesus now obviously i can't prove that part but what she does next is she immediately stands up and she notices first that her feet are flat for the first time and not curled. Then she notices she can see. Then she notices that she can look around and her hands are not curled anymore. Her sight's better, and then she takes her respirator out. Her nurse walk. She had, they had, a, they had a nurse at the home was walking out. Her nurse walks in and is shocked. And I think the most impressive part is her mom gets down on her knees and grabs her daughter's legs, and she feels the calf muscles. And her muscles have been atrophied because she hadn't used them in years. Her muscles were instantly restored as well. And so she sees her doctor the next day, and her doctor is absolutely blown away. And um, when they took tests, they showed her lung was completely back to normal. Her sclerosis was completely gone. And he was like, Yeah, there's no explanation. This is a miracle. So that's one I think that has very good data now you also will hear this rejoinder of people saying you know uh why doesn't god heal amputees why can't we get something really impossible like that and uh there actually is a famous case now this one's a little older so it's harder to confirm but it's very well documented um in spain back in the 1600s uh of a man of an amputee who was healed and so he had gotten his leg cut off and they buried it in the hospital courtyard which was common at the time Uh, and, and this was a catholic context by the way so he, he would rub holy oil on his stump and pray to, you know, the Virgin Mary to heal his leg and so forth. So two and a half years after the accident, he wakes up and he sees that his leg is completely restored. Um, everyone starts freaking out in the town. They uh, get up now and they go and start reporting. this. And so the archbishop of the area is, gets a whole trial together and gets witnesses. They had dozens of people testify. Uh, and this man was very he was a very well-known beggar. So everyone had seen him out begging when he was an amputee right for two and a half years they knew him before he had gotten the leg cut off knew him after he got dozens of people so it was a very public event they also interviewed his surgeons who had cut the leg off and who had treated the stump and they said yeah we did cut his leg off and it's clearly here now they also went to the courtyard and dug up the spot where they buried the leg and that was gone and the leg on the man's foot i'm sorry the foot that had been restored on him had the same birthmarks and scars as his old leg so uh that was a really interesting case Uh, And the only skeptical response I could find actually David Hume, the the famous philosopher mentioned this briefly, but he just hand waved it away. Um, But the only modern uh, explanation I could find of this was someone just claiming that the man had faked being an amputee for two and a half years and had done that. So, and I, and I respond to why I don't think some of those work, but uh, I think that's a very interesting case as well. And um, there's also plenty of cases I have just of people with incurable eye diseases getting instantly healed with blindness and having their eyes checked and tested. And it's being published in medical journals. Um, there was one where a man's, um, half of a man, a quarter of a man's brain was removed. Um, and he became a Christian and afterwards it completely healed back, which is medically impossible that the organ just to completely heal itself like that. Um, and so forth. So there's a lot, there's also some people, people being raised from the dead as well. So, there's just a lot of a long list of these cases that I think are just really incredible. And I think people haven't really taken the time. I think people who who just say these don't happen just haven't taken the time to look into them, at least in, in many cases. So I would just encourage people to have an open mind just to to look into them. So mm.
1: all right. What about the religious experience part? Can you talk more specifically what do you mean by religious experience?
0: So yeah, some people will define religious experience as saying. Um, visions or, or something of that type, a really intense vertical ones. And while I think those are interesting, I don't know if they're necessary. I would just, when I say religious experience, I just mean, um, well, your listeners would probably know who John Calvin is, a very famous you know, theolo- French theologian of the 16th century. He called uh, it the sensus divinitatis, right? The sense of God. Um, it's kind of like a sixth sense we have. We have eyes that can detect light. We have ears that can detect sound. And we have a sensus divinitatis that can detect the presence of God. And so I think the argument pretty much goes that we have this sense, and and that would be a whole scientific argument looking at psychology that even people like Daniel Dennett will concede that our brains have been wired to believe that there's agency in the natural world, and so we're naturally required to believe in God. Uh, And there was a psychologist named Justin Barrett who did a whole book on how babies from a young age will believe in the supernatural, even without being taught it, just because their brains are wired that way. Um, but if you can see that we have this organ, the question is, okay, can we trust our organs and our, our sorry, trust our senses? And I would argue that um, yes, as long as now granted, not, I'm not saying our senses are perfect in any way, but we at least can know when they're not perfect and we can correct it if they're fa- if we have a false belief. So generations down the line, we'll correct false beliefs. So if religious, religious belief is here to stay and it's not being gotten rid of and Statistics show that religious belief is growing in the world proportionally, not shrinking. It's shrinking in the West, but not globally. Um, if that's the case, then we have no reason to distrust our senses, right? It's like it's I mean, it's possible that my eyes could be deceiving me, that I'm the whole world's an illusion, but I have no reason to think that. So yes, it's possible that my senses diminitatis could be deceiving me, but I don't have any reason to think that unless you provide a positive argument against it. So the default position is to assume that our um, senses are reliable unless you can show that they are not in some specific way.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the moral argument, man. Like, I I'm not really a a fan of the moral argument. And uh, what's your take on this?
0: Well, I I guess I'm curious to hear why you're not a fan of it, first of all. But
1: (laughs) yeah, well, I'm I'm not a fan of moral the moral argument because in 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 you know, come if you come from a from a subjective standpoint, everything becomes subjective, you know, and. Uh, it's it's not really something that you can argue, you know, take an uh, objective stance.
0: So you're saying that you we can't know that there's an objective standard in morality. It just seems subjective. No, I, I'm I'm
1: saying that it's uh, in terms of um, validating it as a as a, an actual standard then that's where the problem lies
0: sure yeah i think the harder part would be getting from objective morality to god but i personally don't think it's hard at all to argue that objective morality exists and i would personally say that i don't think anybody lives their life consistently thinking that's not true i i would unless you're just suicidal or a psychopath i would be hard pressed to find someone who genuinely thinks that torturing babies for fun is ethically at least not ethically wrong ethically neutral I just don't think anybody consistently lives their lives in that kind of nihilistic sense. It's just, if, you know, if we're talking about properly basic beliefs of things that are just so intuitively obvious, like it's obvious to me that the world exists. I mean, it could be some matrix simulation, but I don't think it is, right? And that's just how it is. It seems so obvious to me that objective morality does exist. And I don't think there's any good argument against that. And I think most people would would be born with that sense too. So um, I, I that's what I would say with morality being objective. Now you'll have people say, but different cultures have different concepts of morality right it or morality has evolved over the years we used to think slavery was okay in the united states 200 years ago now we don't and that's true but that doesn't mean that morality is an objective you could just as well say that um facts we thought about the world are, have changed right we used to think that the earth was the center of the universe we used to think that we didn't we didn't think germs existed now we do and that that's changed over the years but it doesn't mean that those facts weren't true then it just means we were wrong so people who thought slavery was okay 200 years ago were wrong. Um, they just hadn't discovered that objective truth yet like we have. So I would say that science evolves as we learn more and so does morality, but I don't think that has anything to do with it being unobjective.
1: All right. and uh, Okay, last part, and then is the contingency argument. Um, how, how do you define it? Like, uh, is it similar to the Kalam?
0: Uh, yes and no. It's similar to the Kalam in the sense that both of them are concerned with the origins of the universe. They're both cosmological arguments, but the Kalam is more, speci- uh, is more focused on the beginning specific, like temporal beginning of the universe. The universe is not infinite. The contingency argument doesn't care if the universe is infinite. It, you can concede for the sake of the argument, the universe has always been here, it would not make a difference to the contingency argument, because the question is still, why does the universe exist? So even if you can see that there's this long chain of events causally and it goes on forever. We can still ask, why is there a chain at all and not nothing? And that's when you get into ideas of the PSR, which you mentioned earlier, the principal sufficient region, which is the idea that everything has an explanation either because it has to exist by the necessity of its own nature or because something else explains it. So you and I are not necessary. We came from our parents and they came from their parents and so forth. Um, the chair I'm sitting in is not necessary because it was made in a factory. Um, and this can apply to eternal things as well, right? You can have a, you could have an, a freezer that's always existed for all eternity and there's ice in the freezer and the, and the ice would also be eternal. But that doesn't mean the ice would be um, necessary in the, in the sense that I'm talking about. The, the ice would be caused by the freezer and the temperature. So even if you have this um, causality, you can still have eternal causality and be contingent, right? So we're looking for a, a brute explanation. And so that's why I think when you have a universe that's made of evol- eternally evolving and changing states, um, none of those states are necessary. They're all coming from prior states and those from prior states and so forth. Uh, and, and that gets into the second part, which is the idea of arbitrary, different, uh, arbitrary differences. So let's just concede let's for the minute, or let's just propose that atoms and quarks and energy is the brute fact of the universe. That's what explains everything. Uh, and, and the problem with that is that it's not a very simple theory. Um, now, granted, Occam's razor isn't always good, but in science, you should prefer simpler theories unless you have to posit something more complicated. So even if you're pr- positing any natural mechanism, let's say atoms and quarks, um, they have so many um, elements about them, properties that all of you have to say are necessary. So the size, the mass, um, all the different properties, and every single one, by the way, you, could, you, could imma- you can easily imagine we had one less or one more atom in the universe. So every amount has to be explained is it just has to be it's just a brute fact and has to be the case and so you're stuck with you know billions and billions of different uh brute facts and that's just a very messy one whereas on theism you only have one brute fact and that's god and uh if you're a classical theist which i would probably lean towards you think that god only has one property and that's perfection and so things like omnipotence omnibenevolence omniscience are all actually just reflections of this single property and God has no arbitrary limits, and so you're only proposing one necessarily existing thing, as opposed to billions, and so it's just a better explanation. Um, that's how I understand the the argument, at least.
1: Let's say then that you have this, you know, de facto theism, because and due to these rational arguments that you presented, uh, that that only leads to at least, um, you know, some deity out there that exists you know because for example miracles could be uh done by some aliens or something or like uh, some robot and controlling the matrix same with the religious experiences maybe you know like a, a really good alien or and a contingency arb- argument i don't know like um what what how can you uh, get from this deity or something like some at least something out there to a, a
0: classical theist God. Do so you mean to a more of like a personal God? Well, I would say that, um, well, you're correct. I don't think the contingency argument gets you to a personal God. I think it just gets, to, gets you to a necessary fact. But I would say the last three, the moral argument, the personal experience, and the miracles all point to a personal God because all of them involve human affairs, right? If there's a God who's giving humans this objective value, he clearly, it, he clearly cares for them. If there's a God who's giving people this sense so that they can detect him and have a relationship with him, he clearly cares about them. Um, if you have a God who's performing miracles for people, he, he doesn't seem disinterested. So I would say that that would rule out or at least strongly make like deism very unlikely, for example, you would. And deists were very opposed to miracles in the 18th century, especially during the, the Enlightenment. So um, I don't think that's tenable if you're going to concede that religious experience and miracles and, and morality are legitimately theistic. Um, now, you brought up aliens and Um, while that's true it's very ad hoc is what the the term would be because you have no reason to think it is aliens right Um, the reason that when we because you'll hear people say that well even if we can see the miracle happened we can't know it was god it was just an unexplained thing but the issue is that prayer by definition is calling upon god to act in the world so when i'm praying it's like if i ask you to go if i ask you to take out the trash and i come home and the trash is taken out i would assume that you did that i mean i could be wrong but it, maybe someone broke it into the house and took it out for me, but that's not, I don't have any reason to think that. It's the simpler explanation is that you did it because I asked you to. And so if someone's instantly healed in a way that doesn't look natural because you prayed, you can infer that maybe God was the agent that did that. In contrast, you have no real reason to think it was aliens because what, why, why, you don't have any connection there. Now, if someone called upon an alien, an alien and stuff like that could happen, then you would have more of a case. Um, I have yet to see any good examples of that. But um, yeah, so it, it's, it's going what's based off of the of the, cont- of the religious context in that. So if you're going to throw around, you know, unicorns or leprechauns as agents, you have to have a reason to think it's them and not something else. So that's what I would say to, to that point. Can
1: you define a classic, like what kind of God do you believe in, right? In, in this sense, though, yeah, um, all these arguments may p- sort of paint a personal God but okay then how does how do you take this personal God and, and turn it into the Christian God
0: yeah well and that, that would go a little bit back to miracles um, obviously I think you know the miracle that Christians care most about is the resurrection of Jesus and there's historic arguments for that but I would also and the thing I'm trying to argue in my new book is that there are um, modern evidences as well and I and I think that even if you can see there's a God there are reasons to think that Christianity is true compared to these other religions and parts of that are because one of the phenomena I talk about in there is um, contemporary visions and dreams of Jesus. And what's super interesting that I, and it's not as discussed as I I'm surprised there's not much literature on this is that um, especially in the Muslim world, you have very high numbers. Some estimates say anywhere from 25 to 30% of converts from Islam to Christianity do so because they believe Jesus appeared to them. And what I found interesting about these cases, they're all super consistent. Almost in every case, Jesus is wearing white and surrounded by light. And what's interesting is in the Hadith, in the Muslim literature, Jesus is supposed to be wearing yellow. So it's interesting that all of these people who are not Christians are seeing this man. And granted, Muslims do have some conception of Jesus, but he looks different than how their texts describe him. And he's giving them a message to convert. And this isn't just Muslims. You have this with Hindus. Um, actually, an Anglo-Saxon um, I believe it was in the British Isles back in the seventh or eighth centuries when missionaries came over, um, these people, the natives there who were pagans were having dreams of Jesus as well. And there's documents for that. So there's this global phenomenon of, of non-believers seeing Jesus and most of them are seeing him in the same way. In some cases like Jews and, and um, Hindus and Buddhists, some of them never even heard of him. So they just said a man in white appeared to me and told me to go, go to this town and see a man in green. And so they go to the town, see a man in green. And the man in green's a missionary and gives them a Bible. So, it's amazing how common these stories are, and you don't see that the other way around, right? You don't see Christians sing Muhammad, or at least not in not in those high numbers. You don't see him, uh, you don't see Muslims sing Shiva or, or or what have you. So, the fact that Jesus is the only one who seems to be doing this and converting people, uh, I think implies that um, he has the right way. The second thing would be with miracles, because um, it's true that Christianity is certainly not the only religion to have miracles. But it is the only religion whose main conversions are based on miracles. Um, the actually statistics show that in the, especially in the third world, the highest, um, the main reason for church growth is miracles. Sometimes it's up to seventy percent, especially in like Nepal and Africa and the Pentecostal movements. Not so much in the West, but definitely in the East. And so, um, even though religions have miracles, you don't have people converting to Hinduism in these great numbers because they saw a miracle. Whereas most people in these countries who convert to Christianity do so because they saw a miracle. So if you're going to concede these miracles are from God, it's interesting that God is doing these miracles by and large to convert people to a specific religion. Whereas, you know, if pluralism were true, you'd expect it to be pretty even or him not to be cared about uh, which which religion you convert to. So I would say things like that tip me off. And then there are philosophical arguments as well that I won't get into here unless you want me to. Um for christianity but th- that's just some of the things i would start off by saying all right
1: yeah okay then miracles um hmm let's let's go dive into uh, why you think is what you think christianity is the best uh possible model to explain the truth in, in the world why why are you a christian man
0: i well, part of it's what i just said with the um I think the conversion rates and the reasoning behind it. And I'm not I, I'm not saying that because Christianity has the most converts, it's therefore true. I'm saying that the driving force behind Christianity seems to be something more supernatural and, and going into all of that. But yeah, I think Christianity also, to me, um, makes the best sense of the world because when you look at Christ, the person of Christ in his atonement and his sacrifice on the cross, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I really liked the, the, the point Jesus makes about, um, you know, even, even a, a, evil man will love those who love him, but it's true love is loving your enemies and those who hate you. And I think Jesus is pretty much the only God, at least one of the only gods who's expressed that. Um, Allah never died for me. In fact, the Quran says that if you reject Allah, he will reject you and that his love is essentially contingent. He'll love you if you love him back. Whereas Jesus took the cross and died for those who even hated him. And so um, I I think that's just a, a beautiful thing. And I think that's a morally superior God than the ones you'll find in other religions and so i would say that a god that wouldn't be willing to go through that kind of pain um wouldn't be wouldn't express the sacrificial love necessary to to be a moral agent in that sense
1: mm-hmm. all right and um but do you believe that the resurrection can actually is actually like a proof can be proven you know Uh, factually documented as a documented event
0: the tricky thing and this is appropriate for easter right the tricky thing is that the word prove is extremely difficult um it's not a mathematical proof it's not a scientific proof it's not a logical proof so you have to weigh probabilities and say this is probably what happened based on the sources so i will say we can say with a fair degree we can say with very high degrees of confidence that jesus was crucified under pontius Pilate in the 30s AD. That I think we can be almost, certain, almost virtually certain of um, with all the historical methods we have. I would also say we can be pretty confident, I wouldn't put it as high as the crucifixion, but also de- very decently confident that he was buried by Joseph of Arimathea and that his tomb was found empty by women. And we can also be extremely confident that people, including that both his disciples and Paul uh, believe that they saw him after their death. So I think we can establish those things pretty well with historical methods. As to the explanation, that's where it gets a lot more tricky, and um, I think that the fact that this is an event so long ago—granted, we know, you know, being, having an event two thousand years ago doesn't mean it's hard to prove. We have better evidence that Joe Biden exists than we do that Julius Caesar existed, but nonetheless, it's obviously in that Julius Caesar existed. But that's just because you, you have more limited, you don't have pictures and, and video because it just didn't exist at the time. So admittedly, I think we could have better evidence. We don't we don't have photographs or Jesus's blood samples and, and whatnot. So that would be better evidence, um, which is why I also try to include miracles into that category, the modern ones that we can study. But I think through historical methodology, one can be warranted to believe the resurrection. But I wouldn't go so as far as some of my other Christian apologists who would say it's so good that anyone who disbelieves it's irrational. That that you have no explanation and that you're either stupid if you don't believe it and you have to take this evidence. And I would say, no, I think there's plausible, well, maybe not plausible, but conceivable ideas you can come up with to explain some of these things that are not completely implausible. Um, But I would say that belief in the resurrection is warranted on the historical data, Um, but it's also maybe warranted to disbelief, um, depending on who you ask. All
1: right, well, um, uh, Caleb, let's uh, pause for a bit, all right? all right. Well, that was an awesome in- interview, man. And thank you so much for you know letting me dive into why you believe in God and why you believe in Christianity. But I want to focus more on the other, uh, that one argument that you mentioned as to why, the rational argument as to why you believe in God. And that was the contingency argument. And a lot of um, counter arguments to that is like, Hey, you're sort of special pleading for God because, like, why? If everything that has to have a, you know, a cause has to be contingent, then then what is God contingent on? You know, and so it's sort of, and what? So I posted a uh, question on my Facebook, and it says, um, "Why is there a God if God is necessary? Why can't the universe be necessary?" So, how would you answer that? man?
0: Yes. So two things for people who are saying that it's special pleading, uh, I I would just say that you have to specify on the premise. So the premise is not everything is contingent on something else, because if that was true, then yes, by definition, God would have to be contingent on something. Um, the, The argument is that everything has an explanation, either because it's contingent on something else or because it's necessarily existent. Those are the two options. Right. So I'm saying that God is not contingent. Therefore, the only other option is that he's necessary. So that would be the, the first point. Um, now, for the second point of if God is necessary, why can't the universe be necessary? Uh, first of all, I don't know if I, if anyone really thinks that the universe it itself is necessary. Um, as I said earlier, if, if you're just defining the universe as the collection of everything material, you and I are material. We're part of the universe, but obviously we're not necessary. So you can't say everything in the universe is necessary. That's just obviously false. You could say maybe um, certain things in the universe are necessary, like atoms, and quarks and so forth, um, but as I, but I think earlier I, I did mention two objections. That one would be that if the universe is actually constantly evolving and changing through various physical states, whether that's quantum mechanics or, or whatever, then every state is contingent on a prior state, and so you have this infinite chain of events um, that are that of each, of, of each link in the chain could have not existed. So it's still inexplicable as to why the chain itself exists, and the chain can't be necessary because the things. Um, because it's a composite thing and composite things by definition can't be necessary um, because they're made up of smaller parts. So the necessary thing would be the, the fundamental truth holding those parts together, right? Um, and the second one that I also mentioned was arbitrary limits that um, even if there was one law, like let's say we find a theory of everything and there's one particular law or one particular um, atom or quark or whatever that, that explains existence, um, those laws and those quarks would still have um, philosophical, or I guess not philosophical, arbitrary limits in the sense that um, you would have to ask so many other questions. It's not just why does this quark exist? It's why does this quark exist? Why is it this size? Why is it this mass? Why is it in this location? Uh, and so forth. Why isn't it so? Why isn't it something else? And so that's where the word arbitrary comes in uh, that we can easily conceive of it being some other way. So I guess the idea behind there is that um, you're, as I said earlier, you're kind of just positing these the hugely infinite number of necessary brute facts that have to exist. Whereas with God, you really only have the one brute fact. And if you're, if you believe God doesn't have parts, right? I don't believe God is, I don't believe in the Mormon God where he's a physical man made up of atoms or anything like that. I think God is just being just existence itself um, with one property that we perceive to be many properties just because of our, our location. Um, then you only have to explain God by necessity and everything else can be explained through God. Whereas if you're going to take naturalism, I think naturalism just gets very messy very quickly by having all of these contingent things and all of these um, arbitrary necessities that don't seem like they have to be uh, necessary ontologically. Um, And so that's just how I would put it. But I think theism is just a better explanation. Um, Now, if you're saying, is it like logically possible that there could be this infinite number of necessary things? I, again, I have not looked into, some philosophers would say, yes, it's impossible. I don't know if I would say it's impossible with my limited research on this topic, but I would say, I think it's extremely unlikely and and ad hoc. And I think theism is just a better explanation to explain what we see um, than not. And that would also go, by the way, go into like the kind of universe we see with humans and with, you know, people use the fine tuning argument. I won't get into that because we're talking about, I don't want to get off topic, but that would, that would come into play as well when you're talking about the universe's existence. So.
1: All right. Interesting. Okay, well, um, I'm going to the Facebook comments here, and maybe you could respond, you know, and see what you and uh, tell, tell us what you think about their uh, response answers to the question. So da- Daniel Vecchio uh, interviewed him before. He says, from my perspective, the Thomistic arguments lead to something whose essence is identical to its existence. The universe isn't identical to its existence
0: yeah no i would i would agree with that that makes sense to me that god i wouldn't say god is a being i would say he is just being i would remove the the article in front of it so yeah i would say that that would coincide that god is just existence itself just pure being pure actuality
1: all right okay uh avon minton he says that's like asking uh if mathematical truths are necessary why aren't calculators and you respond, but why are there calculators, Evan?
0: Yeah, I know Evan. He's a he's a acquaintance, or, or I guess you could say a friend on YouTube. Who he has a, his own podcast and and um, website and whatnot. That's very good. Yeah, he he knows a lot of stuff. Uh, he he he's talking about uh, mathematical truths. I wouldn't say that. So I don't know Evan's position on on Platonism, and I don't I haven't studied Platonism enough to have an informed opinion, but. Um, from what I know, I would say that I would be what's called a nominalist. So I don't know if I'm convinced that mathematical objects like numbers exist in this abstract world. I would say that numbers seem to me to be descriptions, descriptions of things that do exist. So um, I don't think, I don't, I, it would be hard to describe colors to a blind person, right? So I don't think red and yellow exist on their own. I think they describe things. So you can say the book is red or the car is yellow or the light that, on my eye the light reflecting my eyes is one of those colors but it does not make sense just to say that yellow and red exist on their own so i would say that you can have you know um i have one pen i have two books these are just um useful tools we come up with our mind to describe things that do exist so um i don't know evan's position on that particular thing but that's where i would differentiate as far as mathematical truths but i would say that um like something like the Trinity, for example, would exist, or I'm sorry, the, the, the idea of three exists because God is a Trinity. Um, it just describes what He is. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Hopefully, uh, Evan, you know, comes on the show sometime. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, a comment from Felipe Diaz the Third, pretty long one. Okay, I'll, I'll read it though. A personal God is necessary to make sense of any speak about any moral claim universally in a transcendent sense and also explains the teleological nature of creation. Also, the eternal nature of logical propositions cannot be grounded in the universe since a non-personal entity such as the universe is unable to communicate communicate much less account for the impartation of any information into the human mind. Uh, okay, and let's break it down for a bit first there. Uh, what do you say about that,
0: bro? So Felipe, I don't know who, who he is, but the, his comment make, reminds me of presuppositionalism a little bit. because He's talking about logical absolutes that God is the, that has to be grounded in a personal agent. I actually don't know if that's true because I'm not a presuppositionalist. So I, I this would go back to literally what I just said in the previous one. I don't think logical truths are technically um prescriptive. I don't think they're the rules that you have to follow that you shouldn't break. I think they're just descriptions. So it it doesn't make sense. I don't think it's like, you know, there's a a law governing making sure you can't make a contradiction. I I think logic is just describing things that exist. And so when something exists with property A, it lacks property B. And so you can't lack something and also not lack it at the same time. Um, so if you're a bachelor, you, ha- you have the property of not being married. If you are married, you can't be a bachelor because you've gained that property. So you can't have the property of being married and then not have it at the same time. So it just depends on what properties you're adding to yourselves. But I would say that logical truths describe the bare minimum for existence. If something exists it has to have some kind of property, then it wouldn't exist. So um, logical truths, I think, are just descriptions of things that do exist so i i don't know if i'd agree i agree with felipe that god's necessary but probably not for the reasons that he is describing
1: okay he's talking he's more of arguing for a personal god here and he says an impersonal an impersonal force such as the universe is unable to create or sustain itself or account for its eternality much less explain why it even exists matter cannot simply communicate universal truths to itself or others and minds presuppose immutable personal and moral characteristics he says a personal mind cannot evolve from an impersonal universe hmm
0: yeah um so i agree with him on the moral characteristics part but i would also say it's more of a moral argument i don't necessarily know if you can get a moral god from from a contingency argument that's just from what i understand at least um i also wouldn't try to i think you can just add the moral argument onto it but the last sentence he has there of a personal mind cannot evolve from an impersonal universe. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, so I'm a theistic evolutionist, right? I, I, I accept the theory of evolution and all that stuff. So I think the brain did evolve. Um, granted, I think it was a process governed by God, but I don't think it's necessarily inconceivable. Now, if you're a dualist and believe in the soul that is true um but he didn't really give you know an argument for that he kind of just asserted it so i would say his last sentence is kind of circular is it's kind of begging the question a little bit i don't necessarily disagree with it but i don't think he great i don't know if that's the whole point of his post but he didn't really defend it very much so i'm here
1: from my awesome friend gal alander he's an idealist yeah there is nothing internal to the universe that would make it necessary there are also other explanatory principles that it fails to take into account. He's uh, counter to the best argument against God.
0: Yeah, so Kyle Allender's more knowledgeable on this topic of contingency than I am. Um, but he, ba- and I think I have read that article actually, because he posted it for people to review it and look at it. I believe that article is a counter to Graham Oppie because Graham Oppie's whole premise is that the naturalism is a simpler explanation that explains more and you just don't have to posit God for anything. And I would agree with Kyle here that the universe um, there's no reason why anything in the universe should be necessary metaphysically it's just it you're just saying it because you're trying to avoid the other conclusion so because i think the universe lacks this essence of being and it's just complicated uh there's just no there's no good reason to think it is i don't i don't i wouldn't say it's impossible but i would say it's very ad hoc and, and i think i like that comment hey there you go because <laughs> i agree with him so
1: yeah you did did you all right uh seth hart Uh, He says, the obvious answer is that God isn't God if he isn't necessary. The universe is still the universe if it isn't necessary. Thus, it's less ad hoc to appeal to God as the foundation of reality. That's the obvious answer. The less than obvious answer is way more nuanced dealing with the ground of being theology and the like that might be a bit too much for a facebook post
0: i like how he he prefaces that with him a bit too much for a facebook post um i'm re- reading the first part of that again it says the obvious answer is that god isn't god if he isn't necessary the universe is still the universe if it isn't necessary um i think i know what he's trying to say i think the way he worded it's a little confusing it sounds a little circular, but I, I, I guess he's saying if you're defining God as absolute being that has to exist, then by definition God can't not exist. Whereas if you're defining the universe as something that's contingent, then it it's not necessary by definition. And that's I would agree with that. I, I think the way he's describing it here sounds a little bit circular because um, he's assuming that God is necessary that which I, and I agree that God is, but I think you have to give an argument for why God, why the being of God is and why the universe is not. Um, but I don't disagree with his conclusion. All right. Um,
1: Bro, I'm going to three. All right. And um, thank you. That was an awesome response to Seth. Seth. Hey man. Uh, By the way, Seth, how are you doing? Seth is also a Christian. Yeah. And um, so a comment from Roy Hiller. He says, I believe in my iPhone more than God. When I want to hear voices to give me directions, I will ask Siri, not God. And, uh,
0: so. so, Siri is very helpful. She, she. I don't have an iPhone. I have a Samsung, but I've, I've heard Siri helps people find out a lot about life, which is good. However, I don't think, uh, I don't think Siri necessarily, you know, qualifies all of existence. Unfortunately, um, I'm glad that Roy likes his iPhone. Um, I'm sure he paid lots of good money for it. But uh, if I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt I don't think his argument comparing God to an iPhone is, is very analogous so yeah I'll just I'll just end it with that all
1: right and uh, another comment from Jason Hannerfeld he says nothing in our universe requires a God to function if something exists then ex- it exists in some amount if it exists in some amount then that amount can be measured it would seem that gods can only be measured by the minds of men to exist or not exist hmm
0: his first statement, nothing in our universe requires God to function. Um, he's free to believe that, but he just made a statement. He didn't really give an argument. So if he wants to to give a reason why that is, uh, I know, you know, if you're going to invoke the teleological argument or something else, then people would certainly beg to disagree with that first part. Um, he says, if something exists, then it exists in some amount, if it exists in some amount, then it can be measured. Um, I'm not sure why that's relevant of what measurement has to do with existence. That That's not... Um, anything to do with, with the conversation. And then his last part is kind of funny because he says, it would seem that God's can only be measured by the minds of men to exist or not to exist. I, well, I hate to break it to, to Jason, but everything that's measured is measured by the minds of men, right? We, we look at things and we, we come up with these measurements and numbers to help us with life. But uh, as I said earlier, I don't think these numbers exist outside of our minds. So yes, everything that we measure is in our minds, uh, at least the measurement is not the object itself. So I just think that I, I don't think Jason's really, really seeing the point there, unfortunately. I see.
1: Well, Jason, I hope you uh, make a reply to that. I'm going to mention you in the video. Right. And then um, from comment from Mitchell Snitter. are yeah. The universe is physical. Physical things are composite. Composite things are dependent. The bedrock of existence cannot be dependent. Even if you argue that the universe exists necessarily, it would still be dependent and therefore cannot be where the buck stops.
0: Hmm. Uh, so I agree with his first part. Uh, composite things are, are contingent because if you're made up of something else, then the, fundam- the, the reason that those things are held together in that form is a more fundamental truth than your existence. Um, he says the bedrock. The bedrock arc of existence cannot be dependent, true. Uh, even if you could argue that the universe exists necessarily, it would still be dependent. Uh, that's just not right, because if the universe is necessary by definition, it wouldn't be dependent. So I think he's saying people can argue it's, de- it's dependent. But it's, I'm sorry, he, people can argue the universe is necessary, but it's not. Um, so I, I think what he's trying to say is that the universe is dependent whether or not you think, even if you think it's necessary, you're just wrong, which I would agree with that. Um, And it can't be where the buck stops. Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's just a little bit sloppy wording on on his part. But I I agree with the sentiment. Another question,
1: uh, comment from Darren McClain. He says, gods aren't are not necessary, though, for anything except for people to have warm, fuzzy feelings and that fear of of needing a place to believe they they go and they die. Mm.
0: (laughs) Okay, so. First of all, I like how he just says gods are not necessary and moves on from there. You know, that's not that's really not much of an argument. But i well, I I mean, we could just watch this. The universe is not necessary, though, and then just move on. I can play this game, too, if you want. But that doesn't really mean anything. Uh, So but for a second part, uh, gods are not useful for anything except for people to have warm, fuzzy feelings and the fear of needing a place to believe when they go and they die. Uh, Two things on that. One, even if that is correct, uh, that would be a genetic fallacy because he's saying that people only believe in God because it makes them feel safe from death. Uh, Even if that was true, uh, and and certainly that's true for a lot of people, that doesn't have anything to do with um, whether or not it is true. Um, I could say, I mean, just because you, I could say that um, because I was born in the United States, I believe in liberty and democracy and so forth. But if I was born in China, I would probably be a fan of the Communist Party. Well, that's true, but that doesn't mean that my belief in democracy is is any worse off and i and i think that's a double-edged sword because um i'm just gonna assume darren is not a is probably an atheist by by his comment um but if that's true you know i could say that uh most atheists come from the west and so they're also a product of their environment if you were born in saudi arabia you almost certainly wouldn't be an atheist so atheism is most prominent in the west and so therefore because i can show you only believe this because you were raised in a product of your environment um so it's just not an argument it's just a statement and so Showing why you believe something is absolutely nothing to do with whether it's true.
1: All Right. Here's a comment from my awesome friend, Kale Baring. He's an atheist. He says, So as another answer notes, God is necessary by definition. We're not sure whether or not God exists, but if he does, he's definitely necessary. We are sure that the universe exists, but we're not sure whether it's necessary. Whether the answer goes wrong is in claiming that this renders it less ad hoc to appeal God as the foundational of, foundation of reality this is the opposite of how ad hocness actually works since we already know that the universe exists and the universe could be necessary it's an, it's actually less ad hoc to appeal to the universe as the foundation of reality and of course as you might expect there is nothing in theology or apologetics which really fixes this problem for theists hmm what does a theist say about that Caleb
0: uh Okay, so he says God's necessary by definition. Uh, it depends on how you're defining God, but that's technically true. Um, we're sure the universe exists, but we're not sure whether it's necessary. Okay, fair enough. Um, his, his third paragraph, I think, is where he goes off a little bit. Uh, the way he's defining ad hoc, I, I think, is a little contrived. Um, he says now his main point is we already know the universe exists, so why posit another entity, right? Why not just say that what, you're making it more complicated by throwing a God in when we know that we, we know a universe exists, we don't know God exists um well first of all we don't actually know the universe exists i mean of course we think so but if you're a solipsist some people might say well we exist and the universe is just an illusion i don't think that obviously but so one could appeal to that but i think that i think that mindset almost almost shows the idea behind that because uh oh well hold on i just I mean, let me reread what he was saying here real fast since we know you a... okay so he's saying that because we know the universe exists we don't need to posit something else well first of all i think i don't think we know the I think he's, he's over-defining universe. Like we said earlier, the universe we know is not, at least the whole universe isn't necessary. Maybe parts, maybe the foundational particles or laws are, but certainly things within the universe are not necessary. There's most of the things in the universe we know are not necessary. They began to exist and come from something else. So uh, you can't, you at least can't say the entire universe is necessary. You can say something within it may be necessary. I'm going to assume that's what he meant for the sake of the argument. Uh, and so the reason that doesn't work is because we d- we don't know, he's correct, we don't know whether it's necessary or not. So saying it exists does not s- explain why, um, why it exists. So it's equally as probable. In fact, it's more probable that it doesn't exist necessarily because, as we said earlier, uh, positing that it does exist, ne- that the fundamental particles or whatever exist necessarily, is an extremely complex uh, hypothesis that's not only logically conceivable that that's not the case, but it's also complicated mathematically and there's just no good reason to to invoke that and you see this in science all the time by the way um when you look at dark matter dark energy we actually haven't been able to directly observe it but we can still make predictions based on activity so you can say that even though we don't know these entities technically exist these are like placeholder theories we have good reasons for thinking that they are a better explanation for for something else so you can have place and that's actually what the um in physics there's something called the higgs boson which adds mass to, to certain particles. We discovered that I forget if it was a decade ago or something, maybe a little bit less than a decade ago. But it was it was hypothesized before then. We had didn't actually observe it. And same thing with black holes a much longer time ago. So you can hypothesize things without having direct evidence of their existence based on other reasons, um, based on plausible reasons. And so I, I would say that's what we're doing here: is that God is a much better and more simple hypothesis, and that although we can't directly see it, that it's a better um, at causal explanation than positing that you have this all these series of, of billions of atoms that exist necessarily. So that's what I would say to him.
1: Awesome. Okay, Kayla, I hope you make a response to that, man. And a guy, a priest, something, yeah, he says the question is wrong because it implicates that there is a God. Does it <laughs> implicate that there is a God?
0: I think it's when you said, if if God is necessary, I guess he's saying, well, we don't know God exists. And I think he misunderstands the hypothetical nature of the question. So, uh, yeah, he that's just a silly that's just a silly point. Uh, He's just trying to avoid the hypothetical there. So, yeah, I don't I don't think you I don't think you and the question were assuming there is a God. I think the way you were framing it is like, if there is a God, does he have to be necessary? And and so so I I think Kai just blatantly misunderstands the, the plain reading of the text.
1: Okay, uh, comment from Sean Byrne. Okay, he says, Why can't the universe be the God? If consciousness is any system that uses a selection process to create a pattern of continuity, then the universe itself does have such a process and must therefore be conscious. The pattern itself is the soul, as patterns are substrate, independent, copyable, and transferable. The judge and voice of the system is the spirit. So, three gods the body, soul, and spirit
0: oh boy okay so this just sounds like eastern theology i mean almost like the hindu like brahmin or or something uh if i almost i guess he's talking about idealism to a certain degree of consciousness but uh, or pantheism i guess would be the closest thing where he's describing but uh, like the universe is the consciousness is god but i think as we already said that um, if you're going to propose the universe is a physical thing and the phys in the consciousness arriving from these physical entities you still have a very complicated hypothesis whereas god's the, the the simpler one so i think sean has a better idea than some of the other people here but i would still say it's a bit and i honestly don't understand the second portion of that at all uh, i don't know where we got into spirit and body and so i think that's just i don't know i i just kind of lost what that has to mm. do with anything
1: yeah all right. Uh, you had a conversation here with Grant Nover, but uh, let's to give a shout out to Grant Nover. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to read the, your interaction here. So you say, because any explanation that is imperfect and has arbitrary limits or uh, of some kind will require far more necessary facts, which makes it less simple and more ad hoc. Grant Nover says, what is perfect? Why would something perfect require far less necessary facts? You say, because a perfect being has only one quality that needs to be explained, whereas imperfect beings have an infinite number of qualities that have to exist necessarily. Grand he says, firstly, you'd have to define perfect. And secondly, you'd still have to explain how it is perfect. You can't just assert it. Otherwise, I could just say that's the way it is, which is essentially what you're doing, but, but, but replacing it with the word perfect. No two people. uh.
0: Okay, so uh, Grant is correct. I didn't define perfect in that because I think I was just doing other things. So I I don't always have time to respond to every comment. I did not technically define perfect, but if I were to define perfect, and if Grant is listening, um, perfect in this sense is um, being limitless, at least logically. You know, not not you can't do the logically impossible, but having no limits within your own character. So um, it's it's not as if it could have been something. So you know, I'm. 510 um, blonde but it's possible but I'm limited I mean, you know I, I'm also I'm, I'm I'm in this room and I'm not in um, I'm not in Hawaii right now if not, I might like to be so I'm not omnipresent I'm not omniscient I'm limited in my thoughts and knowledge and so forth so um, you can you can explain why I'm limited in this because I have a brain I only take up so much space in the atmosphere you know all of these scientific answers as to why I have these particular limits um, so I'm not a perfect being a perfect being I think is just one that has no Limits whatsoever. And, and that's why I say it's that. Whereas the universe, if he's saying it is essentially that's the way it is, um, that would be necessary, but it wouldn't be perfect. Um, the way he's describing I'm sorry, it would be a brute fact. He's saying that's the way it is and that's have to be. That's fine, but that's not, nece- that's not always the same thing as perfect. It can be. Um, but I think a perfect being is the most logically consistent idea of a necessary being. Whereas I, I think an imperfect being, that has to exist as a brute fact is just very convoluted and doesn't seem intuitive at all.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Uh, well, Grant, I hope you make a response to that too. And uh, from Mir Mudasir Ali, he says, because the universe is composite and depends on its parts for existence. Therefore, it is contingent and cannot be necessary. Well, same thing from the for other comment, right?
0: Yeah, we are. Yeah, we kind of already covered that. That's correct.
1: Okay, then next, um, Dane Van Ace, he says that God of the Bible accounts for and makes sense of observable phenomena in a way the universe cannot on its own. Math, logic, morality, beauty, fixed laws, objective truth, etc. require an intelligent mind for most of those examples or concepts which exist in minds not naturally. Require this mind to be maintained within a personal being, especially the morality piece where morality only makes sense in a relationship. Require this mind and being to be universal and immaterial, as the concepts are immaterial and apply universally. And the next paragraph, God is the only being that cannot account for any of this. That can account for any of this. And I would argue, further, only the Triune God of the Scripture accounts for any of this.
0: So, I've I've interacted with Dane a couple times, and he's a presuppositionalist, and you can tell from this comment. Uh, and so I I don't want to be a broken record and repeat everything I've said earlier, but just the the comment earlier that was presuppositional, I would just respond here. I'd also like to say if you're going to, I have people you can interview. If you get David Paulman on, he will definitely rant about presuppositionalisms. If, if he if he's listening, so he he very much dislikes. I mean, I dislike them too, but he very much dislikes it because he's the, he's big into epistemology. He also dislikes my reformed epistemology, but we both we both agree at least that presuppositionalism is is. Almost certainly false, and I think what Dane is doing here is specifically Van Tilian. uh Van Til was the was the big 20th century philosopher, in, in, in air quotes, who who tried to espouse this idea of Christian presuppositionalism. And you you can see that in the last part when he talked about the triune God, because Van Til's whole thing was you have to have the Trinity to make sense of reality, and all this convoluted stuff. I'm not going to get into right now, but but you get the idea
1: all right well there's a lot of comments here yeah i'm want to um, go
0: through all these
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay I'm, I'm just going to let's try to uh cover at least uh, most of them okay that the universe exists contingently it is necessary that either that the universe exists contingently or necessarily therefore the universe does not exist necessarily
0: so that that follows correctly but he didn't defend why he just stated it's contingent i'll give you an argument for why so yeah that's the problem okay.
1: Okay, we have a comment from or though, If you claim to be universe's represent representative on Earth, people will think you're nuts. But if you claim to represent a god, you can start a religion. What? <laughs>
0: that sounds okay. like a bumper sticker. Yeah. That sounds like never... you wearing a t-shirt. Yeah. That's, but I don't okay. see how it's anything but a personal attack. So.
1: Okay. This, this, some of these comments are really funny. Uh, Terry w. West, he says the very term universe uni emphasized as it necessitates contingency therefore it is not in itself necessary
0: uh well there are a lot of scientists who believe in a multiverse but it depends on if you define universes like everything that exists or just the particular Mm. segment we have um but i I think what he's saying is like you know a single universe when we can conceive of more universes um, mm-hmm. And so he's kind of getting to ontological stuff there. But yeah, that, that's essentially correct Of There's mm-hmm. no reason why it should have to be one universe and not multiple universes and, and et cetera. Mm.
1: Okay, so uh, maybe you could respond to this one. Tobias Schuck. he says, why are we talking about the universe as if it were, thing, as opposed to a label we slap onto a plurality of things?
0: Uh, you know, that's what I was saying earlier. I agree with him on that. The universe is not really a single thing. Um, that's like saying history is a single thing when history is a collection of all these different events. So. Yeah, that, that's true. You can't just say the universe is a single entity.
1: Mm. Yeah, okay, here's one from Josh Sommer. It's an it's a necessity of a consequent, but not a necessity of nature.
0: I'm not entirely sure what he means. Well, consequent, uh, but not a necessity. I guess he's saying is the universe not? Oh, it's necessary because, okay. So the universe is a necessary consequence of God, he he, okay he's using a different word of necessity than i would use but he's saying that the universe is like an inevitable byproduct of god because god exists necessarily and god wants to create the universe um but the universe itself that isn't necessary in its own nature and so i I would agree with that um it's like the uh the fridge example i gave earlier the ice is eternal eternal would be a better word than necessary but but it's not necessary because it can still be explained by something else so
1: yeah all right uh Okay, some questions or uh, comments are really funny. Like Mark Oliver, very well, just to give a shout out, the universe does not love me. Uh, I apologize, <laughs> man. I'm really sorry for that. Oh, that's so but sad. God that's loves so you, man. Question. All right. Yeah, that's so sad. <laughs> okay, Mike uh, Hoover, he says, is this a question that left unanswered would cause you on your deathbed to question whether your life had been worth living? Maybe, uh, that, that would be right these philosophical questions man if you really get down to it you know they some of them might are really existential you know yes. yeah. 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 yeah
0: yeah yeah no i i, I would agree. I, I don't think it's necessarily this particular question but more of the idea of meaning and reason mm. in general like yeah why does the universe exist? but why do i exist what's my purpose that mm. i think is more of a deathbed existential question so and i guess they are connected in some way so mm-hmm. yeah
1: all right and um there's so many comments here but i'm just going to uh okay the you, john connor i want you to respond to this if, if john connor the connor is an awesome guy he's into quantum uh, physics he's okay he's he, he, his his uh, comment since ontic pan computationalism is the case some omnipotent intellect must ground degrees of freedom and preserve the truth function of the pocket universe therefore its nature is convertible with being yeah i really understand that man you're you're so right john
0: (laughs) same john yeah in fact i understand it so well that and you said it so i'm not even going to comment on it because i couldn't have said it better so good job all
1: right next uh okay um yep oh no, oh, no. yeah <laughs> you got all this going on here. let's not do that yeah uh, well yeah, I, I think that i think that's uh that's good uh, but so caleb um i think we're good with the facebook comments and um yeah. okay right. yeah so well that's about it and um, caleb thank you so much for coming on the show man one last question man um uh, is there anything you want to promote on the show, you know, because uh, maybe a lot, some people would be interested in what you have to say and uh, I, I, I hear you have published books, right? And that's awesome. And also, um, do you have anything to say to people who uh, maybe want, are really interested in this stuff? Like, what would you advise them? And maybe, you know, to a Christian who's, who wants to grow more and maybe dive into the intellectual side of Christianity?
0: Yeah, so those are both good questions. So um, with the first one, I have not written anything on this particular topic of contingency and necessity. So um, I guess just forward to do this podcast if you if you have questions about that but I, I guess I would I would recommend the works of philosophers like Joshua Rasmussen and. Um, oh, my gosh, I just forgot his name. Um uh, Gail and Proust and the, Alexander Proust and, and Gail and their in uh, their uh, article in the Blackwell Companion of National Theology, as well as some others. Um, that's a good that's a good uh, hindsight way to see the uh, the contingency argument in that form. As for my promotional stuff. Um, so as I said at the beginning of, of this uh, discussion, I do have two books right now. I have a third one coming um, probably next year. But the first one is called Undead, A Historical Investigation to the Most Famous Miracle in History. And that one is on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was published back in 2019 by Pressbooks. And the one I published January of this year, a few months ago, is called Searching for a Solution to Suffering, uh, A Christian Response to the Problem of Evil. Both of those books are on Amazon, on Kindle and paperback, um, if anyone is interested. Uh, The second one deals with um, the problem of evil and theodicy. And I think it's just a topic everyone can relate to, especially during the COVID nineteen epidemic when there's a lot of death. Um, I lost multiple grandparents through this, so it was an, it's an, both an emotional and an intellectual look. Um, but yeah, I, those are those are the works I have right now. And uh, yeah, I guess just keep out and look and follow me on uh, social media. Just Caleb Jackson, uh, preferably Facebook because Instagram is not nearly as much the stuff I post about theism, uh, but you'll see updates on publications and stuff like that when they come out. So uh, yeah, and for your so, for your second point about um, uh, advice to aspiring seekers of truth, I would just say keep an open mind and go where you think truth leads you. Honestly, um, if you think that the evidence it really is there, that there isn't a God and that Christianity is true, then I guess own that and, and hold to it. Um, but if you think, as I do, that there is good reason to, to hold to it, then I think it's a great thing um I would I guess I would like to say though um that either way we should at least want it to be true we should want there to be God we shouldn't want there to be eternal life because I mean who really wouldn't want to be eternally happy I think that's the best case scenario now granted I'm not saying that our desire for it makes it true but I I think this constant desire and hope should should keep us interested in investigating because you'll have people who don't care about theism like why should I care you know it doesn't affect my life, but I think everybody should care because I think at the end of the day, um, if there is eternal life, then the question of the existence of God is not just an important question. It's the only important question. Um, if all of our knowledge and all of our, our facts that we learn about life die with us and we forget everything, then I think knowledge is intrinsically pointless and, and so is life. So I do think that we should at least strive to, to have that concept of eternal life, at least in legacy. So um, it's definitely a, a future we should hope for, in, in my opinion. So um, just keep an open mind and just follow where the truth seeks you, I guess. So that's that's how I'd wrap it up. But yeah, thank you for having me on your show, Almo.
1: So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Almo Adler Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please.
0: golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy. Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with Carrier. Products sold separately.